Chapter 1 of the Coxon Fund. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Kaplan. The Coxon Fund by Henry James. Chapter 1. They've got him for life, I said to myself that evening on my way back to the station. But later on, alone in the compartment, from Wimbledon to Waterloo before the glory of the district railway, I amended this declaration in the light of the sense that my friends would probably, after all, not enjoy a monopoly of Mr. Saltram. I won't pretend to have taken his vast measure on that first occasion, but I think I had achieved a glimpse of what the privilege of his acquaintance might mean for many persons in the way of charges accepted. He had been a great experience, and it was this, perhaps, that had put me into the frame of foreseeing how we should all, sooner or later, have the honor of dealing with him as a whole. Whatever impression I then received of the amount of this total, I had a full enough vision of the patience of the Mulvilles. He was to stay all the winter. Adelaide dropped it in a tone that drew the sting from the inevitable emphasis. These excellent people might indeed have been content to give the circle of hospitality a diameter of six months, but if they didn't say he was to stay all summer, as well it was only because this was more than they had ventured to hope. I remember that at dinner that evening he wore slippers, new and predominantly purple, of some queer carpet stuff, but the Mulvilles were still in the stage of supposing that he might be snatched from them by higher bidders. At a later time they grew, poor dears, to fear no snatching, but theirs was a fidelity which needed no help from competition to make them proud. Wonderful indeed as, when all was said, you inevitably pronounced Frank Saltram, it was not to be overlooked that the Kent Mulvilles were in their way still more extraordinary, as striking an instance as could easily be encountered of the familiar truth that remarkable men find remarkable conveniences. They had sent for me from Wimbledon to come out and dine, and there had been an implication in Adelaide's note, judged by her notes alone she might have been thought silly, that it was a case in which something momentous was to be determined or done. I had never known them not to be in a state about somebody, and I dare say I tried to be droll on this point in accepting their invitation. On finding myself in the presence of the latest discovery, I had not at first felt the reverence droop, and, thank heaven, I have never been absolutely deprived of that alternative in Mr. Saltram's company. I saw, however, I hasten to declare it, that compared this specimen, their other phoenixes had been birds of inconsiderable feather, and I afterwards took credit to myself for not having even in primal bewilderments made a mistake about the essence of the man. He had an incomparable gift. I never was blind to it. It dazzles me still. It dazzled me perhaps even more in remembrance than in fact, for I'm not underwear that for so rare a subject the imagination goes to some expense, inserting a jewel here and there or giving a twist to a plume. How the art of portraiture would rejoice in this figure if the art of portraiture had only the canvas. Nature, in truth, had largely rounded it, and if memory, hovering about it, sometimes holds her breath, this is because the voice that comes back was really golden. Though the great man was an inmate and didn't dress, he kept dinner on this occasion waiting. 
and the first words he uttered on coming into the room were an elated announcement to Mulva that he had found out something. Not catching the illusion and gaping doubtless a little at his face, I privately asked Adelaide what he had found out. I shall never forget the look she gave me as she replied, Everything! She really believed it. At that moment, at any rate, he had found out that the mercy of the Mulvilles was infinite. He had previously, of course, discovered, as I had myself for that matter, that their dinners were soignees. Let me not indeed, in saying this, neglect to declare that I shall falsify my counterfeit if I seem to hint that there was in his nature any ounce of calculation. He took whatever came, but he never plotted for it, and no man who was so much of an absorbent can ever have been so little of a parasite. He had a system of the universe, but he had no system of sponging. That was quite hand-to-mouth. He had fine, gross, easy senses, but it was not his good-natured appetite that wrought confusion. If he had loved us for our dinners, we could have paid with our dinners, and it would have been a great economy of finer matter. I make free in these connections with the plural possessive because if I was never able to do what the Mulvilles did, and people with still bigger houses and simpler charities, I met first and last every demand of reflection, of emotion, particularly perhaps those of gratitude and of resentment. No one, I think, paid the tribute of giving him up so often, and if it's rendering honor to borrow wisdom, I have a right to talk of my sacrifices. He yielded lessons as the sea yields fish. I lived for a while on this diet. Sometimes it almost appeared to me that his massive monstrous failure, if failure after all it was, had been designed for my private recreation. It really pampered my curiosity, but the history of that experience would take me too far. This is not the large canvas I just now spoke of, and I wouldn't have been approached him with my present hand had it been a question of all the features. Frank Saltram's features, for artistic purposes, are verily the anecdotes that are to be gathered. Their name is Legion, and this is only one, of which the interest is that it concerns even more closely several other persons. Such episodes, as one looks back, are the little dramas that made up the innumerable facets of the big drama, which is yet to be recorded. End of chapter 1